Welcome to this program entitled Advances in Fumarate-Based Therapeutics to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Multiple Sclerosis. This program is supported by an educational grant from Banner Life Sciences and is provided by Academic CME. I'm Dr. Fred Loveland, the Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Patricia Coyle, Professor and Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs and Director of the MS Comprehensive Care Center at Stony Brook University Medical Center in Stony Brook, New York, and Dr. Stephen Krieger, Professor of Neurology, also from the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Our agenda for today is to discuss the pharmacolog pharmacological science of fumarate-based therapeutics and the importance of bioavailability of drugs and versus prodrugs. And then we'll discuss the clinical trial review for novel oral fumarate-based therapeutics to treat patients with MS, and then increasing patient adherence to treatment by mitigating adverse events and patient education, and then developing clinical treatment plans for the novel oral fumarate-based therapeutics to improve outcomes in patients with relapsing MS, clinical ASA syndrome, and active secondary progressive MS, including switch therapies. So I'm gonna start and talk a little bit about the mechanism of action of fumarates. And just to remind you, uh, there are several general categories of mechanisms of actions that we utilize in the 20 plus therapies that we employ for treating multiple sclerosis. There are some where, although they've been around for a few decades, we still don't know their mechanism of action for certain, like glutarium acetate and even interferon. We do have agents that affect cell trafficking, we have agents that affect cell replication and proliferation, and we have cell depleting agents. And then we have the fumarates who have interesting mechanisms of action, unclear which one is responsible or which ones for the therapeutic effects that it has in multiple sclerosis. So let's take a look at fumarates. The active metabolite that we're using is monomethylfumarate. It's a nicotinic acid receptor agonist in vitro. Both dimethylfumarate and fumarate are prodrugs that are converted in the GI tract by esterases to monomethylfumarate, which then is available in the bloodstream. When originally um, approved, it was thought that the main mechanism action was activating this NERF2 pathway, which is involved in uh, response to oxidative stress. I'll discuss more about that in a moment. And the half-life of these drugs is about an hour. So the immunomodulation has several proposed mechanisms. Uh, one is activation of a transcription factor uh, for a nuclear factor, erythroid 2 related factor, that's NERF2, which leads to downregulation of oxidative stress response. There's a shift in the profile of peripheral lymphocytes to decrease pro-inflammatory, increase um, uh, anti-inflammatory or regulatory, uh, upregulation of certain regulatory cells, and inhibition of BCAM1 expression. And you can see it a little prettier on this particular slide that we think it's affecting the balance of immune cells by downregulating those that are inflammatory, upregulating a variety of cells, including uh, NK cells, uh, regulatory B cells, regulatory T cells. There's also this shift to uh, increased cytolytic function of CD56 bright NK cells 
and we've seen that experimentally. There is induction of B and T cell apoptosis, and there's inhibition of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and also inhibition of T cell activation and proliferation. So amongst the, the mechanism actions of DMF, which again is going to be converted to MMF, there's cytoprotection, there's oxidative stress reduction, there's restored iron uptake, and iron is developing some interesting uh, mechanistic effects, especially as we see on some of the changes on MRI, and suppression of pro-inflammatory genes. Now, my colleague uh, here at Mount Sinai, Kelly Stetranos, has done some work to come up with a very interesting potential mechanism, uh, which involves epigenetic immunomodulation. And what he has shown uh, is that in, in CD4 T cells, there is a locus, a, a uh, microRNA that's important for Th17 differentiation. And it does that through the chemokine CCR6. And what he found was that, that there was less methylation in the pathologic state. But when you threw in dimethylfumarate, uh, you altered the, you produced a hypermethylation uh, in the CD4 T cells uh, over this region called MIR21 that led to a reduction in CCR6 and therefore a reduction in TH17 differentiation. Uh, and he's presented this and published this. And so what he's proposing is a rather novel mechanism of immunomodulation in multiple sclerosis by the fumarate esters, which leverages this epigenetic, epigenetic effect of the metabolite, fumaric acid, on DNA methylation in CD4 and CD8 T cells to produce an immunomodulatory effect in multiple sclerosis patients. Uh, more work is underway in looking at this. So we're going to be looking today at, at three of the fumarates that are available. We have dimethylfumarate, both, both a branded version and now multiple generic versions. We have deroxyl fumarate and we have monomethylfumarate. So the first two are, are prodrugs and my colleagues are going to be discussing more about the, the use of these drugs, why we use them, uh, and the studies that have led to them. And then we'll have a general discussion on how fumarates fit into our general uh, prescribing patterns and our care for patients with multiple sclerosis. Uh, and I'll just end showing you this uh, picture of our group at the CDG Center uh, in New York. So thank you for your attention to this. And now I'm going to uh, turn it over to Dr. Krieger. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Loveland. I'm Stephen Krieger, and I'm going to talk about the clinical trial review, uh, the data that has underscored the use of these fumarate-based therapeutics in multiple sclerosis. So you just heard a nice overview of how these molecules uh, may work, and now we're going to look at what the data has been. So fumarates, as you heard, we have dimethylfumarate, delayed release capsules, um, 240 twice a day. We have deroximal fumarate, uh, 231 milligram capsules, which is dosed at 462 twice a day. And we have monomethyl fumarate, MMF, at 190 twice a day. Let's look at the data that we have for these. So the active metabolite, as you heard, is monomethyl fumarate. And DMF and DRF are prodrugs that convert to this active metabolite in the GI tract. And you've already heard a little bit about mechanism of action. So 
to begin, let's go all the way back to the pivotal trials for dimethylfumarate, which have had importance for our field and now have renewed importance as these same trials have underscored the uh, approval and release of updated agents in this class. So the pivotal trials define, looked at the uh, original DMF compound. It was actually dosed both BID and TID in the trial. As we'll see, it was the BID dose that was brought to market uh, versus placebo. Define was a 96-week study of 1,200 patients. The outcomes here were an annualized relapse rate of 0 0.17 uh, versus in placebo 0 0.36. So this was a 53% reduction in annualized relapse rate, and that was the primary endpoint that led to the approval of this compound. Um, confirmed disability worsening was decreased as well in a statistically significant way in this study, and uh, other MRI outcomes for evidence of disease activity with new and contrast-enhancing lesions was substantially brought down. The second parallel phase three study of dimethylfumarate was confirmed. This also looked at uh, BID and TID dosing versus placebo. This trial also included a reference arm of glutarimer acetate, which helped to provide context around the data. Another 1,400 patients studied in, in the confirmed trial, very similar primary endpoints uh, achieved, annualized relapse rate of 0.22, for the dimethylfumarate group versus 0.4 in placebo. And interestingly, in the reference arm, glutarimer acetate had an annualized relapse rate of 0.29. So this was statistically significant versus uh, placebo, and there was also an effect seen against glutarimer, even though the trial wasn't designed or powered for that as the primary endpoint. Um, adverse events. This is gonna end up pulling through into the development of these more recent fumarates, flushing, gastrointestinal side effects, uh, rarely a decrease in lymphocyte count. So only roughly 4% of patients with lymphocyte counts less than 500. That's a threshold that we think is important for safety purposes. Uh, and we did have to monitor liver function tests for rare increases in those as well. It's the gastrointestinal side effects that I think got the most attention amongst our patients uh, and for us and uh, efforts to minimize those have followed. So if we turn from dimethylfumarate to uh, deroximal fumarate, abbreviated DRF here, um, there are a couple of trials that were used uh, to approve this agent. So the Evolve MS1 study was an open label, single arm, 96 week trial of 700 patients. So this is large enough to be a phase three and long enough to be a phase three. It's different than our other phase threes in that it's an open-label, single-arm trial. And what they looked at here was reduction in annualized relapse rate at the end of the study versus the beginning of the study. So using patients as their own uh, controls, in essence. The annualized relapse rate at week 48 was 0 0.16. Uh, there was really minimal lymphopenia seen. Um, and the two-year data um, shows brain volume changes were similar to what is known from healthy controls. So slowing down uh, brain volume loss, reducing relapse rates at the end of study. Um, so, and 84% of these patients were relapse free uh, in that time period. So this was an efficacy trial, but not controlled. What was followed, um, well actually here, let's look at this a little bit more. So this is just showing the reduction in annualized relapse rate 
um, over this time period. So you can see patients on the way in to the study versus at the end of the study on duroxamil had a pretty uh, profound reduction in their relapse rates. But this is different than a randomized placebo-controlled trial, and, and so I think the data has to be interpreted with that in mind. Um, treatment discontinuation in this study due to gastrointestinal side effects was less than 1%. And that's important because the gastrointestinal side effects from dimethyl fumarate are you know, kind of top of mind when we're talking to patients about this modality of treatment. To further look at that, the Evolve MS2 study was a randomized, double-blind, head-to-head study, but very short, especially by MS standards, five weeks, um, looking here at gastrointestinal outcomes. Um, so this was looking at the new compound, uh, duroximal fumarate, versus dimethyl fumarate to see whether, in fact, gastrointestinal side effects were less common. So the results here of this five-week study looking at this gastrointestinal scale showed that duroximal fumarate reduced uh, by 46% the number of patients who had higher scores on this gastrointestinal adverse event scale um, uh, during the day's study. So lower rates of gastrointestinal adverse events and discontinuations around 1%, 1.5% versus 5.5% um, due to gastrointestinal side effects. So you know, perhaps a several fold reduction in their frequency with duroximal fumarate. So we've talked about dimethyl, we've talked about duroximal, and so finally turning to monomethyl fumarate. Now, as you heard in Dr. Loveland's talk, it is monomethyl fumarate that is felt to be the active metabolite here. So what was looked at was in this study was whether monomethyl fumarate given orally versus uh, uh, dimethyl fumarate also given orally could have similar bioavailability and bioequivalence in the system. So this is a study of 50 healthy subjects who were given a single dose of monomethyl fumarate at 190 milligrams um, versus dimethyl fumarate at 240 milligrams. And you see here the overlap of the bioavailability of monomethyl fumarate versus dimethyl. Um, since that is felt to be the bioactive metabolite, showing bioequivalence on these pharmacokinetic parameters between monomethyl and dimethyl fumarate that led to the approval by the FDA for this agent uh, in the spring of 2020. And all of the efficacy and safety assumptions for monomethyl fumarate are derived from those pivotal trials of DMF to find and confirm that we talked about at the beginning of this presentation. So it pulls the efficacy data through, considering this to be bioequivalent. Similarly, as we heard before, following up on MMF now versus DMF for GI tolerability, same principle of what we heard about with duroximil. Here you see a you know head-to-head five-week study um, looking at uh, the types of gastrointestinal side effects seen with MMF versus DMF. And what you see across the board over this five-week study is a lower percent of subjects experiencing moderate or severe gastrointestinal side effects. So that's uh, how it was looked at. I will say that their primary endpoint was abdominal pain, um, and that was not statistically different between the two compounds. So all of their subsequent analyses of gastrointestinal side effects were considered exploratory based on their statistical model. But I think this graph tells the story and allows us to uh, guide our patients a little bit with what to expect in terms of GI tolerability with MMF. So that's a quick tour through the clinical trials of DMF, DRF, and MMF 
that have allowed us to have an array of different compounds FDA approved in this class for multiple sclerosis. Now we're gonna hear from Dr. Patricia Coyle about some of these nuances in clinical practice with regard to treatment adherence. So I'm gonna be discussing clinical strategies for the fumarates. Why would you choose a fumarate over a different mechanism of action disease modifying therapy? When you look within the class of fumarates, how would we differentiate them? And what might uh, occur in the future uh, new knowledge that might influence our choice of the fumarates. There are a lot of positive features to the oral fumarates. The fact that they are oral, you don't need to stick a needle into your body to take it. The fact that they have very reasonable, moderate efficacy against relapsing forms of MS. It's really minimal pre-screening. You need to do a CBC, typically dif with, with differential, and a hepatic panel, and that's about it and they have a very rapid washout. Their half-life is one hour or less, and that can be extremely helpful. Overall, they really are very well tolerated. When dimethylfumarate DMF came to market, people were not uh, really fully aware of the potential gastrointestinal side effects, and they weren't taking precautions, things like dose escalation and treating. So initially, there were a lot of GI concerns with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and flushing. But these turned out to be not as significant uh, after we learned how to handle them. Uh, there are uh, a subset of individuals that get treated with a fumarate and develop lymphopenia, but that's a relatively low risk. There's no rebound with the fumarates. You really don't need a pregnancy washout. Now, there haven't been over 1,000 human pregnancy exposures but the, the half-life is so short that when you stop it, it's out of your system within a day. And if you look at the animal model data, there's really no uh, uh, true indication of teratogenicity. So most expert consensus has said that you would not use a washout if you were on a fumarate and wanted to try to become pregnant. Uh, as far as we know with the limited data, there seems to be little impact on vaccination and no increased risk of COVID. Are there some negative features? You have to take it twice a day. This agent doesn't work if you just take it once a day. So if you have a patient who says, oh, I'm so forgetful, I'm never gonna be able to remember taking uh, the capsules twice a day, this is not a good choice in that individual patient. It's not a high efficacy agent. So it would be better not to use it in the minority of MS individuals. It's probably less than 10% that have very active disease or, foot, or fit into a very poor prognostic profile. And there is a finite lymphopenia risk, particularly affecting CDA-positive cytotoxic T cells to a lesser extent, natural killer cells, where you can even see quite severe low lymphocyte count, less than 500 for six months or more. That's said to occur in only about 2% or so. The older individuals are more at risk for lymphopenia. And then there is a PML risk. There's a finite PML risk. In fact, uh, in a review as of March of 2021, there have been 11 PML cases associated with dimethylfumarate with two deaths. That's 1.07 cases per 100,000 patient years. All of them had lymphopenia. So that's a marker, typically less than 900. And most had prolonged moderate lymphopenia, meaning grade two, less than 800, uh, or severe 
lymphopenia, which would be a grade three, less than 500 um, of those individuals. So you really do want to follow that. The age of the PML cases were 39 to 66, a median of 61, and their average exposure ranged from 16 months to 69 months. Now, keep in mind, there are 11 cases. There have been over 500,000 individuals treated with dimethylfumarate. So the risk of PML is very, very low. Now, what about the vaccination data? You know, we didn't really care so much about vaccination until the COVID-19 pandemic. So there is a little bit of data. There are 38 uh, MS individuals on dimethylfumarate compared to 33 on interferon beta. And they received three vaccines and they looked at IgG levels before and after receiving the tetanus diphtheria toxoid vaccine, which is T cell dependent and amnestic response, the pneumococcal vaccine, which is T cell independent, and the meningococcal vaccine, which is a new antigen response. And basically, the dimethylfumarate group responded just as well as the interferon beta group, which is not an immunosuppressive agent at all. So the authors concluded that dimethylfumarate vaccine response was comparable to recall neoantigens and T cell independent antigens. So if we look within the class of, of, of fumarates, we look at the parent compound DMF. As noted, it's a prodrug. You need to take the two capsules daily. It's been on the market since March of 2013. And the bulk of the data is really with this parent compound. We recognize temporary gastrointestinal AEs as you initiate the agent, but this can typically be dealt with pretty well. Uh, but now it's off patent. And there are at least a dozen generics that are being used in the United States. And actually we no longer have patient services from a pharmaceutical company to support DMF. Now it's pretty easy to get on. You need to do a CBC uh, before you start treatment and then it's recommended once to twice a year. And they say that you should consider interrupting treatment if you have a severe absolute lymphocyte count less than 500 for over six months. And you do a hepatic, a hepatic panel before you start treatment and then as needed afterwards. You can take it with or without food according to the label and the half-life is clearly 60 minutes. So it washes out very, very quickly. Well, diroximelfumarate is another prodrug. It means four capsules daily, two twice a day. It was approved in October of 2019. It clearly, as Stephen showed, has less gastrointestinal adverse effects than the parent compound DMF. It was tested in two rigorous trials evolve MS1 and 2, as we just heard about. Uh, according to the label, you want to avoid taking diroximelfumarate with high fat, high calorie meal snacks or avoid taking it with alcohol. I don't think you should be doing that with any medication that you take. The half-life, again, is just the 60 minutes. Monomethylfumarate is not a prodrug. It's the active ingredient. It's four capsules daily, and it's the most recently approved April of 2020. The half-life is even shorter. It's 30 minutes. Uh, there clearly appears to be better GI tolerability, as indicated by the data that Stephen just showed and you can take it with or without food. Now, who is your optimized fumarate patient? Well, I think it's an MS individual where you feel very comfortable not saying they really require a high efficacy agent. It's somebody who wants an oral agent and they are extremely popular, but also somebody that wants a DMT that's easy to start 
and does not have any excessive monitoring at all. This is pretty mild monitoring as things go. It's also an agent that has no major COVID-19 concerns, no major vaccine concerns have been identified, and no major pregnancy concerns have been identified. The individual has to be willing to accept a minor risk for PML, 11 cases out of about half a million, and a varicella zoster uh, is slightly increased as well. So what about future considerations? What could we find out in the future that might influence our choice of a fumarate? Well, we're really talking about the same active ingredient for all of these agents, so we don't expect major differences. But could you document that one fumarate had a lower risk of lymphopenia than another? That would be a very favorable thing. Uh, is there a fumarate that is less likely to cause the unusual liver issue? That's not common to be, uh, to be very candid, but do you have an agent that clearly shows less of a risk? Could you show less of a PML risk with a certain fumarate product? I think that would make it clearly more desirable. It's important uh, if there are robust patient support services that can actually, just from a practical point of view, be very important. Could you document positive pregnancy or breastfeeding data? We now know that, the uh, that dimethylfumarate enters the central nervous system. The level was about 11% in a recent study of secondary progressive patients. Could you see an action within the CNS that might be very favorable? And could you say that this particular fumarate um, had a stronger response? All of these, I think, would be very, very favorable things that might help you select one fumarate uh, over the other. So thank you very much. And I'll turn this back to Fred. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Stephen, for those informative presentations. Now let's, let's see if we can unpack the use of fumarates. And I think, I think Pat, you led into it nicely with, with your summary slides there. So let's start with, with the convenience of, of an oral preparation. Um, thoughts, we, we have three different oral agents that we're using. Well, I think this is where the fumarates are very competitive. They really are very competitive because of the simplistic nature of using them. You don't have to jump through a lot of hoops. You don't have a lot of comorbid conditions that may give you second thoughts. You don't have the pregnancy concerns that you may have with others. I think this has really led to uh, the fumarates being very, very successful as an oral agent, Fred. David? Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, Dr. Coyle's point about the patient that has to remember to take something twice a day, I think is important. Um, but, you know, truly, I think if somebody can get it into their routine, um, uh, people should be able to take take a pill twice a day and, and, uh, and, and not miss it. Um, I am glad that the three times a day dose didn't prove to be more successful, because I, I think that's a bigger ask to have someone take a medicine three times a day, every day, you know, without an end date. Um, but I, I do think that people can integrate this into their, into their lifestyle, particularly patients that may be taking other pills, uh, other medicines for other conditions who are used to the idea of taking a medicine um, once or twice a day. I, I, I have found success with people taking this and, and sticking with it. So you haven't had an issue with people, well, I forgot the second dose. It's easier to forget, to remember the morning dose 
you know, perhaps sometimes. Um, I think every every doctor thinks that their patients take the medicines, and it's only other people's patients that don't take their medicines. But uh, but I haven't found in in a large way people not being able to stick with the plan with a, a fumarate pill. Hopefully, that's something that you screen for carefully before you start the agent. If I have a patient who's telling me, oh, I can never remember to take my medications. Oh, I'm always forgetting them. That this is not a good choice because you have to take it twice a day. Yeah, and we don't really have a biomarker to tell us for sure because the, the lymphocyte range amongst patients is really quite variable from having no effect at all to seeing some very low lymphocyte counts. So if I see the low lymphocyte count, I have some confidence that it's getting in as it is, but that's not good enough for, for monitoring. Um, I, I do think that you highlight the fact that you can get people on this medication very quickly, which is something we want to do, and, and that's a some points, but th then there are some dietary issues that we have to tell people about, right, Pat? You know, for the most part, I, I don't think that should be a major issue. I think there was originally a concept with DMF that you had to take a fatty meal. That appears not to be the case, actually. Uh, so I don't see the dietary issues as being as big as we initially believed. So, but with, so with, with DMF, it's better to take it just with food, right? Because that avoids the flushing, mm -hmm. right? But well, that's, that's right. That can be helpful. You don't, you don't have to take it with food. You don't have to take it with food. Okay. But you may feel more comfortable in, in helping to blunt that, along with aspirin. Sometimes you tolerize over time. Yeah. And Duroximol, the diet recommendation there? Really, what they're just saying is avoid a fatty meal, okay? Avoid a high-calorie meal and avoid alcohol. Okay. And monomethyl? Monomethyl you can take with anything. Yeah. Okay. So that's fine. Um, and then, of course, we have the issue now that we that's been keeping us all very busy, and that's you know, for the first I guess eighteen months, not so much now. We had the issue of concomitant infection with COVID and our DMTs. Uh, so, what was your experience with with the fumarates in patients who developed uh, uh, COVID? So our, our experience is that uh, is agreeable with the literature that uh, taking a fumarate doesn't flag you as having greater risk of COVID or more severe infection. We've not identified a connection personally. Steven? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think our experience bears that out as well. Thankfully, you know, in general, our MS therapies have not increased risks for COVID severity and mortality to a large degree. Um, certainly, the fumarates, I think we've been able to tell our patients that that this class of medicine doesn't put them at higher risk. And then, you know, I, I'm not sure if you, you'll want to talk about the vaccination point, but I think it's been high in our minds. And I think we can be uh, rather reassuring about the fumarates to our patients about COVID vaccination as well. Well, that was the next point I was going to get to. And, and so, um, yeah, the data so far suggests that it's not an issue with vaccination. Uh, Patricia, any COVID issues on your part? No, not really. I think that that's something that is a plus for the fumarates, that it's not been identified as increasing risk, increasing severity, and is not viewed as a DMT that significantly interferes with vaccine response. 
So all of those would be would be positive features. You know, and I think it stands to reason, you know, as based on the mechanism of action, Dr. Loveland, that you outlined, this is this class of medicine doesn't deplete lymphocytes, or at least it shouldn't, except for the small percentage of patients on, on this class of medicine that do end up lymphopenic. Um, and it doesn't block uh, um, trafficking into a large degree of lymphocytes. And I think those two categories, the cell depleters and the cell trafficking blockers, have had more of an effect on vaccine response because the cells needed for the vaccine response simply aren't there in circulation, whereas on the fumarates, they are. And, uh, and so I think that underscores, or at least it makes sense mechanistically, why the vaccines should work and seem to have worked uh, in patients on this category. Now, let's talk about the, uh, a side effect profile a little bit because of the, of the three agents, the, the deroxamil was, was developed to have for the idea of having less GI side effects to it. And then we have the, the uh, monomethyl, which was tested in healthy controls and was pretty well tolerated. How's this fit into your, your thinking of how you use these agents? And how much of an issue has it been? Uh, to be very candid, I don't think it's been too much of an issue, but let's say if you, when we are choosing an initial DMT, we consider the comorbidities that the individual has. So certainly you would have avoided a fumarate in somebody that had a gastrointestinal history, et cetera. Now, I think what we learned ultimately after DMF was launched was that there were specific steps that you could take to minimize this GI issue that seemed to dissipate over a couple of weeks time. But I think there's no doubt from the data that diroxamel fumarate and I think monomethyl fumarate have less GI issues than the parent compound. I think that's a given. So that's only a plus. I just view that as a plus to be candid. Any experience uh, switching from one to the other to lessen GI uh, side effects, Stephen? Yeah, I've actually, I've done that a handful of times, not very, very often, but um, certainly the, the patients that I've had who've been on dimethyl fumarate, who are now on deroximol, um, either have felt that the gastrointestinal side effects are better or basically non-existent on the, the current version. I certainly haven't had anyone who's gone from dimethyl to deroximol and had worsening of gastrointestinal side effects or, or who hasn't been able to tolerate it. And I think that bears out the numbers. If, if roughly 1% of patients on deroximol stop the drug for gastrointestinal side effects, it's pretty rare. And, and I haven't seen that happen yet with the, the people I have on that agent. Okay, Let, let's come back to the, the topic of, of PML, which um, get, gets more exposure than the numbers would justify. Uh, and so on a recent um, MS bulletin board, there was a, a question raised by someone, should they be checking for a JC virus antibody? People, they were going to start on an anti-CD20, um, where there's been, I think maybe one case, uh, of, of PML in that particular group. Um, and it struck me as, as confirming the fact that this is larger than life in many ways in, in terms of the risk. Now, now Patricia discussed the, the handful of cases or maybe two hands and a finger uh, of, of cases um, 
with the fumarates, which mostly with the dimethyl fumarate, because that's the one that's been out the farthest. And so do you do any screening for PML in this population? Absolutely not. The screening was set up for natalizumab, which has high risk of PML, relatively high risk of PML. Any immunosuppressive agent carries a theoretic risk of PML. The whole point of doing a JC virus antibody test is you may give second thoughts if it comes back positive to initiating natalizumab or your counseling completely changes. That's not true. I would never use a positive JC virus antibody test to choose not to use an anti-CD20 or a fumarate, for example. So I think it's kind of silly and people have gotten it twisted personally. I, I think that's true. The only thing I would add though is since, as you pointed out, for the small number of cases of PML that have happened in the world on dimethyl fumarate, lymphopenia was a consistent predictor of that risk. So even though I would certainly not use JC antibody positivity as a reason not to start DMF or DRF or monomethyl, um, I like to know their JC status so that if someone then becomes lymphopenic, um, we can take that seriously and, and try to get their lymphocyte counts up or, or sometimes think about switching classes of medicine if it's prolonged. And I don't, I don't think that's an overreaction. I think it's trying to identify who are the people at risk, given that the vast majority of people on fumarates, JC positive or not, are not going to be at risk for PML. Or Stephen, you could check them when they become lymphopenic. <laughs> also true. Well, that's true. And, and, and then one could theoretically do more frequent MRI scanning, you know, if there was a, just to mitigate any concern. But I don't think this is a, a major issue. And I think that the, the safety actually has been has been quite good. Um, so one other topic I wanted to discuss with you guys, what do you think about the, the approval pathway for MMF? Stephen? Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting. This is the first such approval that I had seen in our in our disease state. So I, I tried to emphasize that in our slide deck that they showed bioequivalence and therefore were granted the approval to utilize the efficacy and safety data from the parent compound from DMF. I, I couldn't think of another example in the MS world where that's been true. Um, you know, I, I have to trust the folks who do the pharmacokinetic studies and, the, and those who review these. I guess an, the only analogy would have been with the generic approval for, let's say, glutaramoracetate, where we don't have a way of measuring in practice whether it is uh, as present in the system and is as bioeffective as the parent compound, um, but that's what the approval process is for. I'd be curious to both of you if you question that or if you also you know, agree that that's a, a reasonable measure of safety and efficacy to justify the approval. Well, well, I, I do come back to the two generic glutaramoracetates that were both approved without trial data. There was a third that had trial data and showed absolute equivalence to the parent compound. That never wound up uh, getting approval in the United States, but it was interesting. In their trial, they showed absolute uh, efficacy equivalence. Yeah, so I think that th there's a difference because you can measure the MMF. And so that can be done. You can't measure the glutaramoracetate. I actually didn't think much of the approval process of glutaramoracetate because that's not a drug. That's really a complex molecule, uh, very different than a very simple molecule like MMF. Um, and so 
I didn't like the former, uh, although I, I agree with Pat, there was the one drug that was approved in one GA that was approved in Europe. Uh, it's not been approved here for reasons unknown to me that had reasonable clinical data. Uh, in this case, um, I think it's different because it is a simpler molecule and you can measure it in the bloodstream um, and, and such. We have an oral agent. We now have three, well, three sort of choices, right? A three molecular choices, right? We have dimethylfumarate in its branded version plus the, the dozen or so generic versions. We have deroxamol, um, which has come out for GI reasons. Then we have the direct drug of monomethylfumarate. Uh, and I think as, as outlined by the colleagues that these are, these are good choices and have, at least that since they've come out originally from 2013, have been popular and have been uh, of great use. And, and, and nowadays with the kind of things that we think about in terms of COVID and vaccines and also pregnancy, and we can't uh, underestimate that and that brought that up. It's really a very important part of our discussion with our patients when we're starting them on a medication. Are you planning a family and the absence of any issues of rebound and the short half-life uh, add to that. So let me just see if we can get some closing comments and we'll, we'll start with Patricia and then Stephen. So I think the fumarates are an excellent oral agent, I think, and, and the orals are very popular. The big challenge will be the concept of high, high efficacy versus escalation. And does that wind up being proven to be a very good strategy that should be used much more broadly or not? It's an unnecessary strategy. So I think the fumarates are very well positioned to be a popular oral agent. Stephen? You know, I would add that even though we nowadays don't consider the fumarates to be very high efficacy drugs, in their era when they were approved, they were considered high efficacy drugs and had superiority against our original injectable um, uh, treatment strategies. So in the, in, you know, escalation versus uh, high efficacy battle, um, I think there is something in the middle. And uh, the thing in the middle is in many ways our oral agents and the fumarates amongst them. And now that we have more than one, we can start to try to personalize that decision better uh, than we could when we only had one agent in that class. So there you have it. Thank you very much, Patricia and Stephen. Thank you. Thank you to those who have, our learners who have attended. Thank you to Banner Life Sciences for supporting this and for Academic CME for putting it on. Be well, all.